It's Monday night, and that means a brand new episode of Graphic Policy Radio, the show that makes us comics and politics. This is the show for folks who watch the Olympics opening ceremonies and, and actually know where every single country is. Uh, tonight we've got a special guest, uh, but before I introduce him, I want to I- introduce my co-host, Alana. How you doing? I'm great. I'm, I'm so excited because I've been looking forward to having this guest joining us for a while. He's somebody whose work means a lot to me and means a lot to a lot of people. So, so let's get it started. Yes, so uh, tonight we've got uh, you know, one of the, the legends in the field. I uh, don't want to kind of talk him up too much because making it sound like we're really kissing his butt. But uh, Phil Jimenez is an award-winning <laughs> writer and artist who's worked for DC, Marvel, uh, basically in comics for 25 years. He's worked on just, uh, you name it, and it's just a who's who of comics. Uh, his new series, Superwoman, is coming out this Wednesday from DC Comics as part of the Rebirth. Uh, so thank you for joining us, and um, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. That was actually quite an introduction. And it's really funny, because I I think I, I was talking to some people about this as a, as a quick sort of segue right into things, about longevity in our business. And I've been doing what I've been doing for, I think, going over 25 years, which I think is not... Common. Um, I think a lot of people, although it might be more common for artists, but certainly there are people in our business who come and go, um, and um, and then there are a few of us who just kind of stick around. And I've been thinking a lot about like the mechanics of that and the whys and hows and um, uh, what I'm good at, what I'm bad at, and sort of you know how just how one makes it in this business for for so long. Um, and so uh, I appreciate your, your intro, because I certainly don't think it's a matter of being legendary, but I do think it's a, there's, there's, there must be a trick to it. <laughs> well, I mean, it's one of those, char- so, those people that, you know, you, you, it's uh, not just the talent and all that, but, you know, you're one of the few who I think have actually kind of broken out beyond comics. And, you know, I see in other media talking, I mean, you know, Larry Wilmore, you're on, um, you're one of maybe two comic people that have been on that show. Um, right. So it's, it's you know, it's, uh, uh, it's, right. it's, it's, think, what are the few that have really kind of kind of busted out there? I think part of it is also you were talking earlier, you know, about mixing politics and comics, and I would say I'm probably one of the more politically active voices in social media. Um, you sort of know where I stand on things, and I think I think it's probably given me a point of view that is both um, good and bad, but has allowed me the opportunity to be on shows like Larry Wilmore's show or to do uh, or to talk about sort of identity politics at, at colleges and things like that. So that's, you're probably right. Like having a point of view beyond comics is, is probably helps some. I mean, for folks who are new to comics, and we definitely have listeners who are, like folks uh-huh. should know, I mean, like, you know, you were probably the first mainstream comics book creator to be out, really. I am told this, and I do forget historically that I I did apparently like I I it was a big deal. Um, and of course, when you're ever some, like in the middle of something, I think it is perhaps more rare or unusual to sort of identify the importance of something when you're right in the middle of it. Um, but there were people certainly in my business uh, who, you know. Uh, worked long and hard and were out far, far earlier than I was. I think uh, I would call it Howard Cruz is one of them, um, obviously. And, um, 
God, I'm assuming Jennifer Camper and a few others, but um, I think I was one of the, the first mainstream superhero artists uh, to sort of really be publicly out. Um, Andy Mangles, I know, had done, who had run the Days and Comics panel for a number of years, uh, had worked very, very hard um, to ensure sort of gay visibility in the industry, and he tried very, you know, he tried to break into the, uh, the industry for a long time. I think I was just really lucky in that I had a, a way of working that was so influenced by um, uh, popular artists like George Perez that it made it very easy to hire me. Um, mm-hmm. And the things I like, I think the things I like drawing were considered mainstream enough where um, it didn't seem odd to have to have a gay person working on them uh, because I don't think it was perceived as coming with any particular agenda. And as I always say, DC Comics, particularly in the 90s, was an amazing place to come out and be out. Um, I, I don't think my, my uh, professional or um, personal and academic experiences would be what they were without DC Comics. And their leadership. I mean, that's, yeah. Hmm. I mean, that's interesting. Yeah. Because it's like, well, you know, I think like you were really one of the classic artists, you know, of of that time period. Um, I mean, when I look at like when we look at a lot of the art back from the nineties, it does not it is not all aged well. Um, the extreme, <laughs> extreme era. Understatement. Art, um, is uh, I mean. You, you've always been very, very classic, and I kind of hate the word classy, but I have a hard time not using it when describing your work. And I do think the fact that, like, you sort of capture the, like, platonic ideal of, like, comic, superhero comic artness, like, you know, while also being, you know, a gay man and being Latino, like, kind of puts it in a place where, people who normally don't like anything different from what they expect are like still recognizing like, yeah, but this guy's, this guy's good. So we have to react Um, in a certain way. I think so. I think that's actually fair and apt. And um, again, I I really do believe it was a sort of weird, because I don't, I don't think my influences, like I certainly didn't set out um, to be a kind of gay mainstream artist, i.e. Um, the art that I made was art that I was really interested in making. Um, and the, the stories that I wanted to tell were stories that I really, I was really interested in telling. And they happened to sort of coincide with mainstream tastes at the time. Um, I think one of the things that has been trickier perhaps for other creators in the past is that their, their, their taste or aesthetic might not be quite so, yeah, quite so mainstream, quite so big too. Um, and I literally just, that's just how I kind of drew, drew. and that, that was my interest in drawing. And it remains, while I work in comics, it definitely remains my interest. But I do think it made me uh, accessible and hireable. Um, and, I, and again, I, I go back to this idea that um, uh, DC Comics in the 90s was a particularly amazing place for young gay creators and creators, um, well, certainly, I don't know about creators, but uh, people of color, editorially, I, I tell this story often, but my friends were all editors and people that worked in the halls, and they were young, um, 
young, amazing people. I'm not sure we made great comics, but um, they were people of various uh, races and ethnicities, sexualities, genders, um, and that the space that was created by Jeanette Kahn and Paul Levitt was a remarkably safe one for different. And I really do think yeah. they always need to be sh- uh, shouted out. Again, the product might not have reflected what was happening um, behind the scenes, but certainly uh, the offices themselves were, were filled um, with people um, from across multiple walks of life. And, it was, and so it made coming out and being sort of different and othered incredibly easy in a way that I don't think it would have been at most other companies. Mm, that was really interesting. Like having a whole crew so that you're not just sort of coming up by yourself really makes a big difference. Um, right. Uh, it's huge. It's huge. And, um, uh, you know, like I'm just thinking I would call out people for a variety of reasons, uh, but it was sort of like this whole crew. It was like uh, Frank Pederici and Ruben Diaz and Chuck Kim and Alexander Morales and um, uh uh, just a host of others, and we were—I mean, we were—we were all in it together. Um, Jason Hernandez, Rosenblatt, and it, it was just a bunch of names that you don't see as often anymore. Um, so it was terrific, and I again, I'm really grateful to Jeanette and Paul for allowing us to express and be that different um, behind the scenes. Again, not always reflected in the material that we publish, but certainly. Um, we tried to bring those sensibilities when we could. Well, there's certainly, uh, this is like jumping way ahead in the order of things I wanted to talk about, but it fits in so well. <laughs> but there are certainly things that you did, though, that really pushed things forward. Um, I mean, you diversified the Amazons. Uh, that, that's like a thing that is really, uh, I, you know, I think it's so it's like important from your period doing Wonder Woman. Um, that's very sweet. All I did was pick up where George Perez left off. Um, I I think I George had had worked very hard. I think to again keep in mind it was 1986, um, but he had added uh, uh, diversity. I guess ethnic and racial diversity certainly in the Amazon with two important supporting characters, and then sexual diversity was addressed later in his run multiple times. So I always. I don't always think that I did anything particularly groundbreaking. What I did was bring stuff back that had gotten forgotten or lost. Mm-hmm. Um, one, of my, one of my great joys was when I introduced the new Paradise Island, and I got a call from George. And George and I don't talk all that often. I speak with him mostly at conventions, and I check up on his health. And I'm very grateful for him, but I never want to be – I never want him to think I'm, I'm ever stepping on – or, or overstepping boundaries. But um, he called me, and he's like, oh, you know, Phil, this is George Perez, and I just want to tell you, I really love this new Paradise Island, and it's exactly the sort of culmination of everything I tried to start all those years ago. It's really beautiful. And wow. you know, he was, yeah, and I'm like, well, that's amazing, because what I, tr- what I believed wholeheartedly in the vision for that character um, that George had set up, and that had been... Unfortunately, I felt like damaged in subsequent years by by editors and creators who sort of forgotten what that was. I remember there was a very active period of time editorially right after George left, 
where they wanted to distance themselves from Georgia's run. And in doing so, um, you know, one of the things that we, we lost was sort of like the diversity of the Amazons. Because when the Amazons came back, they were essentially generic warrior ladies um, without a lot of uh, uh, sort of sort of physical or racial diversity, et cetera. And you didn't actually see their relationships handled. Um, and, I, and so all I tried to do was bring back what I felt George had started um, and uh, bring a sense of continuity to, to the work. Which tends to be my... Were there... Mm-hmm. Oh, go ahead. This tends to be like a thing that you do, yes. Is that what you're going to say? Yeah, like I just... Yeah, I just... Um, my belief, and that comes out of this sense that people spend a lot of money and a lot of emotional currency investing in this work, and nothing makes me crazier than to see it casually discarded. Um, and it's one thing to sort of move on and grow... Um, you know, all, all material, all mythology needs to do that. It can't remain stagnant because then it stops working. But I, I also think that um, people should be rewarded for their time and effort and for the care and the love. And so I, one of my goals is to never dispense of or never to, um, never to disregard uh, what has come before me. Um, if mm-hmm. anything, it's to incorporate it, incorporate it somehow because someone somewhere loved it. And I, I never want to tell them that what they love has no value. That's such a good way of putting something that I think a lot of folks have had a hard time articulating. Um, so thank you for that, for real. Oh, sure. And, yeah, well, yeah. My pleasure. And, I mean, in terms of, like, the when you were sort of reminding people of the diversity that Perez had, had began – was there like any fanboy pushback who were like, I don't, why are there black Amazons? Why are there lesbians? Like, and how did you address that at the time? The only pushback, and this is quite, I mean, I've told this story many, many, many times, but the only pushback I've ever received on Wonder Woman for diversity was introducing her African American, not quite boyfriend. And I remember very Ah. clearly the chain of events that happened. So I, I got into no trouble introducing um, Amazons who are lesbians, uh, Amazons who are diverse, like um, sort of highlighting uh, the Middle Eastern Amazons. None of that was ever an issue. The issue came when I introduced this male character and um, who was going to be, he was designed, I guess, to be a potential love interest. Um, I was really interested in exploring a love interest with this sort of character. And he was based on several friends of mine and named after my best friend, Trevor, who, which, of course, is ironic because her first love interest was named Steve Trevor. And I thought that would be kind of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Um, mm-hmm. But people flipped out. People were outraged. And I believe part of this was because at the time the character had been established as Silver Virgin, and Wizard Magazine published an article about, is this going to be the man to deflower her? So I think there was, there was, oh yeah, there was a bent of fans who were just outrageously racist. Like the, the letter writing campaign was, was mind boggling in how vitriolically racist it was. And then there were another group of people I still link it all to sort of race or certainly racialism or, or bias anyway, um, who just couldn't handle the idea that Steve Trevor wasn't going to be the guy that first had sex with Wonder Woman. 
Um, oh my like, god! I can't. I just cannot deal with men with their priority being who is the first person. Like it was. It was disgusting. crazy. So it was. It was. I I tell these stories not to. What do I want to say? Not to be all fans with a bad brush, certainly, but to say that there was definitely a contingent of ironically Wonder Woman fans for whom this was really important. Who she slept with, what that person looked like. And people went nuts because the character, when Diana first asked him on a date, he says no. People hated him from the get-go. He appeared on two pages in six months' worth of comics, and people despised him. And it was one of my first times where I thought it was people bringing far more to a character or to a reading experience than I actually believe existed on the page based on <laughs> uh, stuff that they had read elsewhere, which, of course, reminds me a lot of you know, movies and, and media today and uh, how we consume materials almost always with a layer of meta text, it feels like. Like, we bring so yeah. much to it um, that it's almost impossible to to wholly just judge material uh, or work based on, you know, just what it is as it exists. Um, so anyway, that was my, that was my experience with sort of uh, bias pushback on Wonder Woman and not, not with the lesbians, um, not with hmm. like, you know, black and Asian Amazons, um, but with a potential black love interest who said no to Wonder Woman. And the, the, the gag was that he said no to her because she never actually thought he would say no. Like she, and, and he was kind of like, you know, it was sort of a way to give her, I was really interested in giving Diana some, some flaws she might not even be aware of, right? Like I felt like as that character had been portrayed, she lived in a world where probably very few people actually ever said no to her. And so even if so subconsciously it would even occur to her that, like she was, she would ask someone out. Well, of course I don't want to go out with her. Like, like and not even, and not even. I didn't even imagine it being like snotty, right? Like it was, it was almost subconscious. And so, the idea that she had this expectation. Well, I mean, I'm Wonder Woman. Of course, you're going to go out with me. And it might not even be present in the forefront of her head. I just wanted to play with this idea. Um, but people saw this. Trevor character is haughty and snotty and how dare they turn her down and she's our princess and, and I think they, I mean I think it basically came out to he's an uppity black guy mm. that was my big takeaway so for yeah. the people who, who were vocal about it vocal enough to write letters to call the offices to post online so this is really funny because I was talking when I went to the comic book store this week I, I spoke to a number of the women who I'm friends with who work at Forbidden Planet who are all massive fans of your work um, and uh, I was talking with them about, like, what are some of the, the quintessential Phil Jimenez moments from Wonder Woman and things like that, and they, we were talking about, like, are generally not liking Steve Trevor and wanting him to go away in general, but that they, one of them specifically was like, oh, he tr- she, you know, Phil tried to bring in this love interest who's, like, clearly a real hottie for once, and how interesting is it that this is the first guy who says no to Wonder Woman, and, you know, because he's got, he's got, he's like, you know, he's like a UN guy and he's got like, you know, saving the world stuff to do. And I, I haven't right, seen right. that before, so that was new to me. So I was just reading that and here are these two women who are both queer women, uh, one of whom is a woman of color being like, oh, we really like this guy. This is like the best attempt at having a male love interest for Wonder Woman ever. I loved that guy. I have to say, I was so into him and people were like, oh, he doesn't, he couldn't exist. 
and the job he had at the UN, I, I just been on jury duty, and one of the people that was on jury duty had that job at the UN, and which was so funny to me. Like people are like, oh, it's that that doesn't exist. That's too goody two shoes, et cetera, et cetera. I'm like, no, no, it actually it does exist. <laughs> um, and I met someone, and he was physically based on a friend of mine, uh, Timothy Stickney, who was an actor on One Life to Live, and. Um, you know, it's just an amalgam of a lot of things I was interested in, and I wanted a character, a human, a human character that um, I, you know, I I felt would be different than Steve Trevor. And I do remember when I tell the story all the time, and it's what 13 years later, but it still struck me that one of the I remember a fan came up to me complaining that he couldn't relate to this character because he wasn't blonde and blue-eyed like Steve Trevor, like he was, and it was I mean it was. Jesus. I was like, whoa! Um, I was odd that he was willing to articulate that verbally, right? Like, that it wasn't in the back, you know, that he was like, no, this is what it is. Steve Trevor looks like me. He's blonde and blue-eyed, and that's the only person that can love, you know, Wonder Woman. So, whatever, because someone else was complaining about his hair and how ugly his hair was, and, you know, he had braids back then. I'm just like, Whoa. Uh, oh my but God. The vitriol, the vitriol targeted that character. And I was just looking at the one issue, my last issue of that book, where we open and it's him and his brothers are watching a football game. And I was like, do we even see that in comics anymore? Do we see families of people, even for one page, like hanging around not doing superhero things? And so I say this, I, I, this sounds super obnoxious, was like, I. I love that I had the instinct to do this one page just to sort of humanize them a little bit. To be like, oh, they're hanging out in mm-hmm. South Carolina playing, you know, at a barbecue watching the football game. Um, because I feel like that that is a, a more rare occurrence in modern-day superhero comics. So I could be wrong. I'm behind on my Yeah, I mean, that's sort of like the X-Men thing, but it's not, it's not everywhere. And, like, the fact that it's an X-Men thing is one of the reasons I like X-Men, you know? Right. Um, I was uh, talking to some um, journalists last night, and we were talking about the important need for contrast. And you have to show, you know, you have to show humanity uh, if we're, you know, expected to care at all about what these super people are doing, you know, to and around humanity. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. That was the, coming back to Wonder Woman, that was the only time I really got pushed back was with that character. And Everyone hated him, and they could not wait to come off. And then wow. he died. Well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and then he died. <laughs> oh, my God. And, was there, like, ever an opportunity to, like, write her with a female love interest, do you think? So this might sound outrageous um, and probably offensive, and it is not my intention. But I remember having a long conversation with Jeanette Cohen about this, about the idea of Wonder Woman having a, a female love interest. And many, many people like the idea of her, like, having an Amazon girlfriend. And my issue with it is very specific, which is why I never, after the conversation, I actually never approached it. Because she was the only child raised by all those women, it just never felt like that, and she was a princess, it just felt like the dynamics of any relationship there would be odd. Um, because if they're all essentially her aunts and, you know, they mm-hmm. all had a hand in raising her. And so 
the idea of her having a relationship with them at the, at the age I was and where I was mentally, I, I didn't think I could handle, I couldn't figure out that in my head, like what that relationship was. Um, I do regret not giving her a human-female relationship. Um, the other thing, though, and uh-huh. I think about this a lot, and I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a gay 40-something guy, so in hindsight, I wonder, as open as I like to be, you know, I still get very, very nervous about writing women and writing about women and their sexuality, um, particularly, uh, I would say, bisexual women, uh, like pansexual women, etc., um, certainly back then, I'm not sure I would have been sophisticated enough to handle that fairly. Um, and so I'm almost glad that I didn't, if that makes any sense at all, if I didn't try. I know it sounds really crazy, and I, 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 think I, would, I think I would be so much better at it now. But now, of course, mm-hmm. I'm so, and you know, even as it relates to Superwoman, I'm, like, so not interested in my take on this stuff. I'm interested in, it, it goes back to the sort of politics of, like, I want to see a woman write about Wonder Woman and her and yeah. that relationship, right? Like, I'm kind of ready for that. I'm into that. And I know this is my job. I'm really lucky to have this job. But, but there's, mm-hmm. this, there's a weirdness to, like, as much as I have to say about Wonder Woman, I'm still a guy, right? Like, I'm... I, I had some wonderful experiences, and I know a lot, I think, academically about that character, but I, I feel like uh, it's time for other people to say their piece um, and to contribute to that legend. And when I say well, other thank people, you. I mean like, women. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm totally, totally, totally there with you. We did a fantasy draft of who we wanted to have write what in Rebirth, Basically, and I know right, right. we're like, well, we should. I know we were like, we should have filled it back to do Wonder Woman. I'm like, he did Wonder Woman. I think he should do JLA. Like, you were like my fantasy draft for JLA, I, and I did one. And, right. I mean, yeah. I did Wonder Woman, and and the other thing is, I did a very specific iteration of Wonder Woman, which I feel like is no longer in existence, and I feel like I would be not oil and water, but the 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 more swords and sorcery Wonder Woman. I'm just. As I get older, I'm less and less a fan of that. Um, and I really do feel like some stuff, this is a longer conversation perhaps for another time, but I really do feel like some very interesting, I think really progressive stuff got tossed aside in the 80s, um, which is almost blasphemy to say. Um, but the, the stuff that interests me, the, the more fantastical stuff, um, has been de-emphasized for again, mm. kind of a, 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 I would say ultimately a more realistic um, version of Wonder Woman, and I find that the more fantastical version of Wonder Woman, more fantastical version of most characters, as I get older, becomes more appealing to me. Um, a more oh. playful version, I would say. Yeah. So it's probably better than oh, I go back to that because I think people would expect something, and I'm not. That's the other thing. I'm not sure I could go back to that character. I did have a pitch in for the, in the digital group, but they said it was too big. Um, and I wanted to take the five, what I believe are the five iterations of Wonder Woman and put them in a team-up book. But it was not so much a <gasps> It was not like a multiple Earth thing. Um, it was 
I don't even know how to describe it. It was less literal than that. Uh, it was a story that touched on um, themes of these these iterations, et cetera. Um, and it was a crossover, and there was lots of action adventure. Um, but I didn't want it to be very specifically like a, a, a crisis. Uh, it was just a team up of very of different versions of the same myth. It sounds like it would have been your all star Wonder Woman, actually. I think it probably would have been. Um, although ultimately, uh, Legend of Wonder Woman came out, and that you know, again, I think there needs to be more of that. Uh, Renee like wrote this mm-hmm. amazing thing that people responded really beautifully to, and my my book probably would have been slightly academic in its approach because that's really now my interest in that character um, is less creative than it is about those iterations and how different they are and, and how the decades have shaped this character. And particularly ideas, uh, I'm very currently very interested in sort of the militarization of the Amazons and um, how that you know, pertains to patriarchy and patriarchal ideas of matriarchy and female society. And so actually, I feel like my book would end up being very academic and maybe not at all that interesting. Hmm. Well, what is interesting is your new Superwoman book for DC Rebirth, and I wanted to hear from you, how did the series come to be? Because we had no idea. Like, we kind of had a vague inkling that might be something with Lois Lane, but it could have really been anything. Um, It could have been anything. It didn't start this way. Uh, It was actually, Mm. so back in October of last year, uh, I can't believe it's been almost a year, I I started talking with Dan DeVito again about working at DC Comics, and I'd never drawn Superman, the book. I was like, oh, I would actually really like to do that. So for a brief period of time, I was partnered with Brian Hitch. He was going to write it. I was going to draw it. I was very excited. I started doing all my research, started asking questions, and just kind of got into it. And then uh, it was decided, the publishing schedule was decided, I want to say December, that these books were going to go bi-weekly. And Brian bowed out. I was no longer... I, I can't draw bi-weekly books, so they shuffled me around to Action Comics, and then they decided I was going to do Superwoman. And they signed me this character, and they said, this is who it is, and this is Superwoman, and um, with Jeff Johns, we kind of built out a six-issue arc. So I originally thought it was going to be Action Comics featuring Superwoman. And then somehow, hmm. I think I learned on the Internet that um, it was like a bleeding cool gossip thing, that I was not, it was actually going to be Superwoman its own book. And uh, so I just started doing my my back issue research. And again, I actually ended up, and this is not just, I'm not trying to sound, um, what I want to say, like a martyr or anything. Actually, I think my friend Regine is listening right now, but she was one of several women I asked if I should even take this book. Because again, it's like a dude writing, writing and drawing adventures about a woman. And like, aren't we a little tired of this? It's like, sh- you know, isn't there another point of view? And then I thought, well, I do have taxes to pay and rent to pay. So if nothing else, I can at least start the book and I can launch it and then perhaps use it as a way to get new voices into comics down the road. Um, So we started developing the character. As I say, it was assigned to me. Um, I got to play with Lois Lane, which is actually really, really cool, and then got to bring in a few other characters, super characters that were sort of lingering that had not been claimed in other books. So I got Lana Lang and I got Steel and Steel's niece, Natasha Irons. And then I just kind of built this thing. And with 
and it ended up working out pretty well. Um, what was extraordinary is that I would, I was just tossing out ideas. Some, I, some were good, some were bad, but just to sort of be playful. And I was amazed at how receptive the editors were to a lot of things which I thought would be quite controversial. Um, and there's one right now that I think they're not really happy with, and so I might have to back up on that. But it has nothing, it has nothing to do with the woman part of Superwoman. But that's how that book came. I was originally going to be the artist on Superman, and then, slowly, and then I was going to be the artist on Action Comics, and then they put me on Superwoman, and, and now it's coming out on Wednesday. And it's actually been a wow. very good process. I am very, very happy. They're incredibly patient because I'm not fast. Um, uh, our fill-in artist is, uh, she's actually our rotating artist. She's actually really amazing. Um, it's, and it's been a very, very good experience, I think, mostly in that, um, once again, I get to address this idea. And I would love, I'm babbling. I feel like I should ask you about this. I was very, very interested in doing a book about women who are good to other women, um, even if they don't like each other. Like, that was very, very, very important to me. And so the yeah. fun part about this book is that Lana Lang is, like, a supporting character and sort of spoiling a couple things, but the, the preview is out. Basically, Lois Lane goes to Lana Lang and is like, look, you train Superman, you need to train me. And Lana Lang is like, we don't, I don't like you. Like, why do I have to do this? And, and, of course, it's about this relationship between these two, and they become partners and it's kind of, it becomes sort of a, a bit of a buddy book uh, as Lana like, sort of trains Lois. Lois is brash and funny. It's also a little bit of Green Acres or one city and one country. So I, I get to play with that. But what I wanted to do is make sure that I, I did a story about, about people who were, even if they didn't like each other, were not mean to each other and could be respectful of each other and could help each other. Um, and I was very, very interested in working on a project of any kind that showcased that, uh, people helping That's each great. other. Yeah. So, yeah, there's um, a lot of pressure to have, like, these female cat-fighty issues, and it's, I, I appreciate having something which isn't about that. No, I'm, I'm actually not you interested know? in it. Uh, they, they, the two characters bicker, but I don't believe it ever devolves into cat fight. Like, I, I, it's, and it's never, ever, ever about men. It's usually about how to use powers which I like a lot mm-hmm. because Lana Lang is an engineer and she's a scientist and, you know, she's, she's teaching Lois the science of her powers to make her think about them differently. And, and it's, you know, Lois will use her super breath and Lana's like, I told you to use your heat vision. Like, what are you doing? And it's a lot of that. And <laughs> the ongoing gag that I have is that Lana Lang is constantly going, okay, here's your headline. And they're terrible headlines. And so Lana will be like, where that's the, ter- that's the worst headline I've ever heard. How do you have a Pulitzer? Like, that's a terrible headline. Um, and so they, <laughs> I want them, there to be banter and occasionally bickering. I just don't want them to ever be mean to each other. Well, we've, you know, we've got the review copy and we've read it, and I definitely think you've achieved that goal. Uh, I mean, the other thing I wanted to salute from it for sure is that, like, this is a Superman comic. Like, it feels like a Superman comic, but with, like, female protagonists. So if oh, you're good. a Superman fan and you're looking for a Superman comic, you should buy Superwoman. It is a Superman comic. Like, it has that same sort of, like, the way you handle, like, the super science and the science science in it 
and the relationship with the media. It's all Superman stuff to me, you know? Well, I'm so glad to hear that. So a couple things. I just want to shout out to Matt Brady. He was very, very helpful with some of the science stuff. Um, And I was – I've been incredibly grateful because I reached out to several people who are – who work in science who were very, very helpful to me um, because science will be sort of a big part of this over the next few issues. Um, but Matt, Matt was actually really, really, really helpful on, on leading me to places and sending me to websites that would be, would be helpful for the, for the work. Um, and I'm glad to hear that because it needs to be a Superman book. My fear has been, and I think my editors are a little, it, it is, it's a little idiosyncratic. Um, I love issue two, for example, but it's much more episodic um, as the, as characters, I reintroduce a lot of characters and stations and places. Now that the rebirth number one is done, I kind of re really reintroduce Metropolis and um, we get to Natasha Irons and steel gets a much more prominent role. And uh, Maggie Sawyer um, develops a relationship with Superwoman and Yay, uh, Maggie was, Sawyer. Uh, Maggie Sawyer, who turns out, oh, my God, was fantastic to draw and write. I was really nervous. Fortunately, it's a fairly brief scene. Um, but just a, this, I'm establish, I want to establish like a James Gordon Batman, but here it's Maggie Sawyer, Superwoman. Um, and I found that, like, Maggie, again, was, like, kind of, was very helpful to Superwoman. I was like, listen, I want allies, not enemies. I want, like, I trust you. I know... I want, you know, I want us to be partners too. And so, again, that, that theme of partnership and helping came, came back. And I hope she reads correctly. I, she felt, I thought she was awesome. And, and one of those characters well, I, that yeah. just, yeah, once she was on the page, just sort of came uh, kind of flowing out. She was really cool. And Natasha Irons ended up being really fun too, um, mostly because she's a crazy robotic expert. And she's 18, and, you know, she talks a mile a minute like me. And, um, and she's interested in everything, um, but she gets really excited about her robotic projects. And she, she, she has one for Superwoman that will be a really nice throwback to fans of Silver Age Superman comics. So, oh, neat. Yeah, she's a great character. Yeah. I'm glad to see her back for sure. I really like um, her a lot, I mean, and I'm also mm-hmm. keeping her a little peppy. Because in the new 52, she's younger mm-hmm. than the than the than the pre-Flashpoint version, so I try to keep that spirit. I, I tend to use a lot of my students who are in their late teens, early 20s, as models for some of these characters, and so they're a couple that. Um, oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, sort of are really filtered in. But like having Maggie Sawyer back, like she's really a very important character for a lot of queer women and she's like one of the only butch identified really characters in comics and like they don't always like present her that way but like that that's like how we read her you know i i feel like they i mean i thought gotham central was really really good about presenting her visually and i felt like i mean she she's definitely a butch lesbian like there's i don't think there's a question when you see her um, and if you know anything about her, you're like, oh, I, I know how she represents. Like, I know how she represents the world. And I kept that. Uh-huh. And I, I, you know, she was very, very easy to embody. And I was really amazed. That character, I think, was invented in 1986, 87. You know, um, she's, a, she's a character with 
almost 30 years of history. And I think that's really important. I think a lot of people forget just how long she's been around um, and, and how important she actually is to, to the DC universe. And when I found out she yeah. was going back to oh. Metropolis, I was, I was like, oh, I want her. I want to use her. <laughs> That's perfect. Like, I, trust, I trust you to get that like, in a way that a lot of writers and artists don't. So. Um, yeah, as I say, in, the, in, the, in, the, in, in number two, I'm skipping ahead, it's, it's a fairly brief scene, but she and, and Superwoman build a bond. Um, it's, it's really their first meeting, and it's a little tense, of course, because first meetings often are drama and all that, but it's not, it's not, it's not drama. It's, not, it's mostly two people filling each other out. Okay, wh- who are you? What are you? What's your deal? Okay, well, this is my deal, and here's my number. Like, you, you know, let's, there's stuff out there that we can handle together, and uh, we should which I think tends to be the whole theme of this thing, is um, let's do it together. I like it. Team up. Yeah. Yeah. I want to respond to something that you mentioned earlier that I think is really important. Um, you talked about, like, you said that like, I'm not very, that you said that you were not very fast as an artist. And, you know, when I look at your art, I look at, like, you're somebody who just does such excellent figure drawing, all of your anatomy works. It's never sloppy. You never have people's eyes pointing in different directions. And I think I have a hard time. I look at a lot of, there's, you know, it's one thing when contemporary comics artists have a very stylized look and it's not, and having functional anatomy is like not the point because it's just not what they're doing. But there's a lot of artists right. I look at and I can tell they're going for functional anatomy and they don't know how boobs work and they don't know where women's internal organs go, and their stuff's not even attractive. And then frequently you also have people who, like, draw characters' eyes going in different directions. And I don't like blaming artists for their work because, like, the working conditions and the pressure that you guys are under is insane. But I look when you tell me that you're not fast, I'm like, of course you're not because your stuff is so careful and detailed and rich, and there's so much in it, you know? Uh, and I, I don't know, I like, use. for newer artists, they don't have the, they don't have, like, maybe they don't have the leverage to be able to say, like, this is what I need to get done. But it so pays off, and I wouldn't want your stuff any other way. Well, thank you. I mean, the, it, having a rotating artist helps um, because, uh, you know, it's going to be, like, a couple of issues on, a couple of issues off, three issues on, one issue off. Like, we're just going to have to go back and forth. Um but careful is the word I try to use. Like, I think they're actually better draftsmen, better drawers, better anatomists. But I do try to be very, very careful and very thoughtful. And what I would tell young freelancers, I, I do believe, though, there are times where I get, um, I get caught up in the overthinking. And there are, I remember hearing a, a friend who's a quite successful movie producer said, you can do research until the cows come home, but at some point you have to generate. And I traditionally have not been good at that. I get really lost in how is this going to, like, this tiny panel, does this A, tell the story, and how will people receive it? Like, I was thinking a lot about women's bodies today because I realized, because I draw superhero books, but even though I try to do, I try never to sort of overtly sexualize women, and I'm actually really fond of the superwoman costumes I've created, because uh, superwoman does have multiple costumes, um, because I want women to be able to cosplay them and I want them to be able to like, like, you know, they're covering head to toe and 
I, I was very, very careful of making sure that they were colors and patterns that would be easily replicated and fun, I think, to wear. And um, you'd have, like, multiple options, et cetera, and, you, you know, that anyone could wear them. I was thinking a lot about how women can play Captain Marvel, and I, I, I wanted a costume or a series of costumes like that. At the same time, I do tend to draw a fairly specific genre type. And I was, and I want to be more careful of that in the future, because the the couple of super, super powered women that I've drawn in the first two issues, including Natasha, all have fairly like athletic fit bodies, like kind of hyped bodies, and so I've been thinking about where and how to introduce change to that, um, because I do find that I gravitate to that just naturally, and I think it's just almost. Um, it's unconscious think it's an unconscious approach to to heroic anatomy. Like I never want to draw mm. big boobs and outrageous like but I do tend to draw them tall. I tend to draw them, you know, looking like athletes. Because I think in my head I think I would do the same for men, right? Like superheroes mm-hmm. feel like kind of it's an athletic gig that you're in. So I tend to I tend to athleticize them. And I've been very, very conscious lately of I've been looking at my art, and I'm like, oh, wow, I need, to, I need to start introducing some new body types. Well, I mean, you're ahead of the game in the sense that you actually know how to draw other body types. I mean, your character design work for Sarah, uh, for the Angela series, I, Sarah is, like, the greatest thing ever, and I adore the design you did for her. And I looked at her body, and I was like, oh, my God, like, I haven't seen a woman with a short torso and stocky legs with some muscle, but she's not, like, looking, you know, like she's super muscly, but she has, like, I just hadn't seen that body in a comic before. I'm and so glad. I, so yeah. that's awesome. And you know what? I have to tell you, but I have to tell you, that was um, Marguerite and that was Kieran. I mean, they were like, this is what we want, and I went home and I drew it. Um, and I really think they need the shout-out for that. And I remember... For me, the two difficulties of that character, because um, I was actually incredibly eager to draw um, a woman who was short and a little thick, because I thought those were fantastic. What was interesting is because she was designed as a, she was created as a trans character. And so I remember mm-hmm. actually going to, um, it was an, an academic conference for uh, um, gay comics and comics creators, and sitting in on the on trans panels to talk about representation. Um, and, oh, my God, uh, Tara Avery, I think was that was her name, she was very, very helpful in, um, I'm pretty sure it was Tara, was, was telling me that, you know, these are ways to think about visually representing um, a trans woman um, without going overboard. Because I wanted, I wanted there to be some sort of signal but I also just didn't, I didn't want to see kind of ridiculous, right? Like a, an Adam's apple the size of a golf ball. So I, mm-hmm. I, tried very, I tried very hard to be thoughtful about that. That's important. Yeah, that was, uh, that was at FlameCon, right? That was, that was super cool. Uh, FlameCon was great. This is actually the, it was an academic conference about a year ago, and they're doing the second one oh. in San Francisco. And I highly recommend. It. it was actually one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite experiences was just listening to academics in the business of comics, talking about comics, particularly about um, gender and LGBT 
uh, Q issues. It was, it was like fantastic. Awesome. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I mean, like Sarah, I, I mentioned this to you when we met, like Sarah means so much to me. Like I'm, I'm not trans, but like I related to her more than I related to like any female character in the comics really. And, you know, I've been reading these my whole life. So that's saying something that. for can real. I, can I ask a question real quick about what got you yeah. into comics? Um, like what, what was your path into them? my Sure. Uh, my brother is about five years younger than me, and when he was finally old enough to start reading comics, because that's what boys do at a certain age, like I saw them lying on the table, and I was like, this is printed matter. And I began reading them, and I love art, and I always drew, and I really like sort of the iconicness of the character designs. Um, and I just immediately got into it by reading X-Men that he left lying around on the table. Which is why I didn't get into comics till junior high. It's because he wasn't old enough to read till I was in junior high. So, um, very interesting. But it definitely I'm always curious. Was yeah. I'm sorry. Oh no! Please, please, please go ahead. I was just say, but it always sort of was like you know, like you relate to these male characters like way more than the women characters because a lot of the artists just don't, and writers just don't know how to to make it work, and you want to see yourself as the protagonist. Like that's how humans are. So. You kind of, I mean, this is something I would actually ask you, like, you know, as someone who's, like, not, like, a straight white dude, when you're reading comics, like, you sort of take on the perspective and the eyes of the sort of presumed, like, cisgendered white male hero, um, and, like, you wear that costume in your experience of it a lot, I I find. And you can kind of forget that it's actually not you. I have this amazing conversation. I bring it up a lot. So at that academic conference I keep referring to, I was talking to Joan Hilfe, um, who's an amazing cartoonist, and she was an editor at DC Comics, and she's a teacher at SBA, and I've known her for a zillion years. Mm-hmm. And we were having a discussion about Wonder Woman and why gay men respond to her, and often lesbians don't. Um, or she, I, at least in, con- in our world, it felt like men responded to her far more than women, and how she had mm-hmm. perhaps evolved at some point into almost a gay male icon, um, you know, far more than it was my experience when a lot of gay women were less interested in her. Um, particularly the fabulous kind of Linda Carter version of her, which was, you know, this sort of glam and heels kind of thing. But uh, I said that one of the reasons I was actually long attracted to female characters, particularly on TV, is that they were allowed a much wider um, breadth of emotion than male characters typically were when I was growing up. So while many women would find this annoying because you would see a character, a female character often crying or upset or probably weakened in some way emotionally, I was always impressed by that because male characters are so alpha and so, so very, very boy in such a way that their emotional lives are so limited. And I'm a really emotional person. I cry at the drop of a hat. And so to see a character who could laugh or cry or be emotional, be physical in ways that I could never see male characters, um, I'm absolutely positive is one of the reasons I connected to uh, female characters, particularly female heroes, so early. And it's funny because I know a lot of women who dislike those portrayals of women. Um, and for me, I found, that, I found it very liberating to see another human being uh, be able to experience all that emotion in a way that I felt like men 
male characters, particularly in the 70s, even in the, certainly in the 80s, were not allowed to uh, without mockery. Um, so I, I, yeah, so the idea of reading about protagonists and then having to put on their skins, I think, is really interesting, particularly with superhero comics, because it's all boys, and then you have this crew of women, though, who more than ever, it seems, are really into them um, or into things about them. And, Garrick, it didn't even occur to me until it kind of became part of a pillow local conversation that, like, I deserve to have characters that looked like me or were, like, you know, queer women or anything because, like, it was just sort of, like, this thing that you do as a reader and I don't need to be treated differently or whatever. But um, in reality, it's, like, kind of fucked up. that like, I, you, you really you like live your whole life like dressing up as a guy in your imagination because of what the media you're attracted to is of course of um, course um so uh, yeah. which reminds me of another conversation i because i think about representation all the time and visual representation an enormous amount and i'm really lucky in that at least in terms of seeing some people, I've never, ever, ever not been able to find someone that looks like me in media, right? So, like, that kind of representation, I don't, I don't need, and I, I don't ever have to worry about. But I was moderating a panel about, I think it was about people in color in comics, and I was talking to two African-American gentlemen, and one who was very clearly wanted to see more people that looked like him in comics and genre fiction. And the other who was, like, much more interested in finding characters who identified with his, he identified with their uh, outlook, social traits, you know, characteristics, interests. He was much less worried about visual, visual representation than he was with almost, I would say, spiritual or character representation. And I think about that all the time because I, I always tend to err on the side of um, uh, visual representation. So like with Superwoman, I created all these supporting characters and very, very much, and I'm saying this out loud, with agenda, to say, I want to make sure that this world is as diverse and as colorful and as interesting as possible. And so uh, if I'm starting out with two white women, then the next character I create is definitely not another white person, right? So, or another, um, and I'm actually really, really proud of the supporting cast so far. Because it's a superhero comic, as I would say, you know, when Zod attacks her in the Phantom Zone or whatever, and he doesn't really, I'm just saying, that will always take precedence over identity politics, but um, just because that's the way we work. But when I, I have, I'm really, really happy to see so far the amounts that I've been able to squeeze in um, a visual representation of other kinds of people that you just don't normally see, because I believe it's actually very important. I mean, I've seen already on social media, one of the fans was like, oh, my gosh, there's a woman in her job in, you know, in this one scene who's like, you know, clearly like an actual character in the story. And I was like, yep, that, that, that makes a difference. And that's oh, also good. a recognizable, you know, city to us. Like, I was actually talking with um, Desiree, uh, I forgot what her handle is, Lovely Kenya on uh, Twitter. And we were like, Marvel is based in New York, like Marvel's main city is New York City, and there's like two Puerto Rican characters. 
Like that demographically, mm. like doesn't even make sense. Like, right. do they not realize that like 25% of New York is Puerto Rican? <laughs> um, you know, I um, probably like, no. Want, and this is yeah. right. I was going to say one other interesting thing about that, and this is never an excuse, but it does strike me. Uh, particularly working with artists from other countries who live on other continents. I'm always really interested in who they pepper in the background. Um, Mm. Because, and I say it's just a funny, like, reference thing, right? Like, um, so, for example, when we, when we, when I draw people, I, like, I, I scour the internet for reference to stuff, right? But it's really funny how homogenous a crowd scene can be in a different country if I have not been to that country, right? Like, because I'm not even mm. really thinking about, especially in a city, right? Cities tend to be, particularly in Western countries, fairly mixed. Not always, but, um, like, you know, how many, for example, how many Indian characters were in any story that took place in England? Um, right. You know, right? Like, that's a good, it's, but, but I also mm-hmm. think you kind of have to be there, live there, so be cognizant of that. So one thing I'm always really curious about is how how cities, New York is drawn, Metropolis is drawn by people who live in Spain or Brazil and how cognizant they are of that stuff, what their own sort of, how their own biases and interests affect uh, visual representation, what their emphasis is on, um, who's careful about it and who's not, right? Like, it's it's all these other little factors that also come into it. Aside from just not really thinking about it, sometimes it's um, people you've not, not, never even been to New York and they're drawing New York, so they're not they're not cognizant of what is seen on the street. Um, and then of course when I go, like I'll go to like a midwestern city and forget. Oh my God, it really is homogenous, right? There are there are entire pockets where it's the same kind of person. And so if you live there you might actually believe that that's what the the world is like. So just kind of fascinating. I mean, that's what's such a great thing that you're like a New Yorker and a New York artist and like living in this place and like representing it visually. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I, I, it's, even though I confess occasionally about the expense of New York, I'm definitely not one of the people. I did great. I currently love, I mean, I really do love living here for this reason alone is that the number of different kinds of people that you see here, it's just an experience that I don't believe I would get anywhere else in the country. And while a lot of people have been complaining about the, the sort of gentrification, transformation of the city, it still hosts, I believe, Queens. There are more languages spoken in Queens than any other county in the United States, right? Like, so there's still that sense of difference that I require, mm-hmm. because especially I work at home by myself, um, and I'm by myself a lot, so I'm alone with my thoughts, and et cetera, and I feel like I can get really lost in that. Unless I'm outside and I'm reminded that there is a world of people, of human beings, of difference, of types, of shapes, of ways of thinking, of ages, right? Which I get literally just by walking outside my door, and then life is put back in perspective. Um, so when I get really isolated in my apartment and I... I'm always so grateful to have New York to remind me um, of just how vast and exciting the world is. And then I try to bring that back to the work. Yeah, I can see, I, I can like actually see that, you know, I, it's like, 
Mikkel, Jamie McKelvey says, like, he said he has to live in London or else he can't, like, draw fashion and contemporary people the way he does. It's kind of a similar... Oh, that's very, a very, very necessity. funny. It's actually, I, I, was drawing, I was drawing a parade. Um, why? I have no idea. I think if I just wanted to draw Superman Bloom. Um, but <laughs> actually, in, in issue two, there's a blackout in Metropolis. And so this parade gets halted, like, right in the middle of the street. Um, and what was the point of that? It had something to do with uh, a drawing New York and something. And no, I don't remember. It doesn't really matter, apparently. That's okay. That's okay. Yeah. Sorry about that. Um, no, I, I, you know, one, one of the things I wanted to actually ask as well was, like, you're an artist and a writer, and you've, you know, you've written for yourself and drawn, but you've also worked for other people. Like, you definitely have more of an ability to draw to your strengths when you're doing your own writing. But, um, like, what do you consider to be drawing to your strengths in terms of your own work on this series now that you have that control? And I, I actually I heard great things about that Vertigo book you did a long time ago. I think, I don't know if it's available. But, like, you know, when you have the, avail- when you have the um, ability to really decide what you're going to be drawing and playing to your strengths, like, what does that mean for you? Well, it means a lot. So I always, so several things. Um, I actually don't think I'm a particularly good writer. I'm a really a sort of idiosyncratic writer with kind of a very specific point of view. And I only really like to write um, for myself when somebody else isn't writing something I want to draw. Um, this opportunity mm. came up to write, and I was like, okay, I'll take it. And I'm very grateful. Don't get me wrong. I'm incredibly grateful for these the opportunity and the money and the voice. Um, but I don't think I'm super great at it. Although people seem to like the stuff, but what, what it, what it, when I draw for myself a couple of things, and I know this drives my editors crazy, I do tend to do a lot of, I tend to have a plot, and then I figure out a lot of stuff in the art. And one thing that I can ask of myself that I cannot ask of an artist, I just tend to draw more on a page. So... Uh, I have more panels, I have more space to do uh, subplot and, and B and C character development. Um, I can do dramatic moments, etc. Um, so the, a skill that I believe I have is that I can go big and small, but I can compact more uh, in an issue. Sometimes probably too much, they're overstuffed, but that comes from also a, an ideology. If people are spending three bucks on this, I want them to be able to have something they can go back and look at over and over and over even if they might be a little overwhelmed by it at the, at the first place. Um, anyway, so I actually find I don't love writing for other artists because I don't think I'm very good at it. I think that I pull out good stuff with my work. Um, I can compliment it because I kind of know what I'm doing, but writing for other artists and playing to their strengths, especially their strengths are not mine, I think I need a lot of work and a lot of help doing that. My editors are helping me really play to Emma's strengths because she's like a big action artist. And so she does these beautiful splash pages and um, a lot more glamorous. And the scale is different. And so I've been adjusting to that. And I'm not sure I'm very good at that. So I'm really awed by by writers who can accommodate and adjust to artists. So think about classic Chris Claremont in the 80s, who seemed to be amazing at finding or writing the stories that play to his artist's strengths. I think I am I'm not as good at, as that. 
the interesting about Otherworld, that, that Vertigo project, that was a huge experiment that I can't believe they let me, they paid for. I actually think <laughs> that is also a project that is overstuffed. And I don't actually think, I think I, I did what I complain about all the time. And one of the things that I think Grant Morrison did on The Invisibles, and I swore I would never do it because Grant, you know, I think Grant came to realize on The Invisibles that he went full-on high concept before he introduced characters to take us on, that, on his sort of conceptual journey. And I think one of the things he would have done differently or one of the things he tried to do when I came on as an artist is do more character development so that people would have characters to attach to so that when he went into the high concept crazy stuff, they at least sort of had an anchor. But I think I did the same thing on Otherworld. I created characters. I think they were not particularly dimensional characters. And I think I mistook sort of biting for flawed, right? I think they're just, some of them are just kind of mean. And I think looking back on it, particularly the villain, quote unquote, goes villainous really quickly. And in my head, in my head, it was all, he was, he was motivated from this place of sadness and a broken heart, et cetera. On the page though, looking back on it, he just looks like a jerk, like a bitter jerk. And, uh, so I think I made a few mistakes there with character, but I did create a world and the politics of the world. Many, many people found really interesting. And I was, I, I've been trying to get that project off the show as a, off the ground as a TV show. It was in development as a film for about 18 months. And then I, I got it back. And then another production company has been working with it to try to turn it into a TV show. When we keep getting pushback, because it, it's a genre show and it would be very expensive to make. Um, as it is. So, however, the development has uh, has been really wonderful for those characters because I've gotten rid of some, added another one, and I figured out how to make them flawed without making them all hideous. Like, uh, hmm. there are people that I root for now in a way that I don't think I rooted for them in the last, in, that, in the original text. I think they were all just a little too harsh. Um, and I think that was my flawed attempt at giving them um, characters and points of view. So I think just time has made me probably better at writer. All this is to say, as I babble on, I'm a much better writer for me. I can write for myself because I, I can add and subtract more easily as I draw. Of course, it draws my editors crazy. Like one goes, I think you're making it up as you go along. And that was a, that was a bit true. Like I turn in this plot, but then I, I started realizing, oh, I can add these two or three elements, and then we're we're good. And suddenly, um, but I think I'm a much weaker writer when it comes to playing to other artists whose strengths are not my own. Hmm. That's something I will have to work on. That's interesting. I mean, I, I have not read that series you did for Vertigo, but, like, the folks at my comic store really liked it and were sad it got canceled. So. It's really pretty. It was Eisner nominated for color um, because Jeremy hmm. Cox kicked butt on that book. Um, it was highly experimental, and I'm really proud that it exists. I mean, I think the art, I was looking back on it, and Andy Lanning inked it. I was like, oh, my God, this art was so good. And we were trying a whole new thing where I was drawing. It drove everyone mad because I was drawing everything in layers. So I would draw the characters on one layer, backgrounds on another, special effects on another, to give the colorist 
um, freedom to play visually. Um, and it, it was beautiful, beautiful stuff. Um, I'm actually very proud of the artwork of it. I think the other thing was I was experimenting with the, um, the hero's journey, the 12 act hero's journey. So each issue mm-hmm. was, was one of those chapters. So like, um, you know, the call to adventure, the, you know, the, the rejection of the call, threshold guardians. The problem is not every chapter paced out that way, even though I try to make it paced out that way. So, so, but again, it was an experiment. It was intentionally, I'm going to try this. And Vertigo, the folks at Vertigo, Will Dennis, my editor, Casey Sass, they were willing to let me give it a shot and support it, whatever it became. So I'm very grateful for that. So it's a weird, flawed thing, but it's highly ambitious. Um, and my hope is that this TV thing will get up off the ground eventually. It's been a long time in development. Because um, I think it would actually be beautiful TV. And uh, I think I think we're in a space now where consumers would totally get it. So awesome. uh, going over your... Going over your career with DC, I mean, you've pretty much worked for them nonstop since the early 90s um, with maybe a, br- a little break here and there. Like, what's changed over that time, like, for, for you? I mean, you've, you've been there through Rebirth, New 52, you know, every – so many crises. Um, I was know, not there the, for the New few. 52, actually. Really? I was not there for the New – I was not there for the New 52 at all. I think I inked four pages – uh, of Yildur Ace and okay. Green Lantern. Um, and actually, that was one of those things. So the New 52 did this thing where it completely severed my emotional relationship to that material. It was such a hard reboot. And what it did is it made me think, oh, okay, I guess this is it. I'm done. And it was a strange emotional time also because the New 52 launched the same year my parents died. My mother particularly, who I was very, very close to. So the end of this universe that I loved and the end of, a, of my mother sort of coincided in this weird thing. So one of the things that happened was I, was, I became much less nostalgic. And there's, a, there's an old adage that you never become an adult until your parents die. And when I found out my father died, I was just like, oh, okay. And suddenly the material had a different weight, called a different importance. I was... Um, I I felt like I could let it go, which I'd never felt before. I felt so emotionally attached to it. And for the first time ever, I thought, if I don't read every comic this month, I'm okay. Um, wow. And so the, yeah, but what it did, though, was comics had long been my emotional anchor. Drawing comics had been the thing that I loved doing more than life itself. And suddenly I didn't love doing it so much anymore. Um, I couldn't find that thing. Like, I was, you know, for five years, I'm like, what is this? What am I doing in this business? Like, what is my voice? And, of course, I was getting older. You know, I was thinking, do I have anything left to say? Especially, I, you know, and maybe my job is to get younger people in. I applied a couple times to D.C. because I wanted to work in new talent development because I love doing that. I, I work at the Cooper here at Design Museum here and I teach at FCA and, um, although I think mm-hmm. that my students probably hate me because I'm a really hard teacher, uh, <laughs> I really love, love, love um, helping young young people see their vision through teach you know like, teach them how to tell stories, etc. Like that just makes me happier than anything. 
so I thought that okay, this will be my this will be my uh, future is I won't make so many comics, uh, but I'll help other people get into them. And I was really into that for a long time. Um, and then I came back to DC partly because of the money. The, I mean, I was I was doing Valiant. The people of Valiant have been really good to me. Marvel has been really great to me the past few years, but I just wasn't clicking with their material. Um, and then DC, it was once Rebirth happened, and it's funny because I wasn't actually going to be a part of that. And then Jeff Johns called me. He's like, dude, come on, you have to do it. I was like, okay, okay. Um, and it ended up this sort of restoration or reinvigoration, I think, of the line kind of – I was allowed to reconnect with it. Um, so it's not the same for sure. Uh, again, it's a kind of much more distant, professional, almost academic look at stuff. Um, but I think that's not entirely bad either because I'm trying not to write glorified fan fiction. I'm trying to write stuff that feels good to fans, feels good to new people, feels good to me, but is not that this is the story I've always wanted to tell in comics. Because I find that um, that can that can go too. Yeah, that doesn't that doesn't serve the entirety of the audience often. Um, and I wanted to be more thoughtful about my audience than that. So I've seen a lot of DC. I've seen huh. a lot of change. I've seen a lot of transformation. Um, I've seen good material. I've seen bad material. I've been a part of bad material. I've been a part of great material. Um, as I say, it was, I, I've been thinking a lot about longevity in this business and how I've stuck around because it's certainly not disciplined. I'm not a very disciplined artist. And, again, I'm very slow and, you know, my editors are bleeding out of their eyes constantly because, you know, we're, we're barely getting to deadline. But um, I think the work tends to be really solid and emotional. I think my best work, you can feel that feel what I'm trying to do and you can feel my energy in it. And I, I think a lot of great comic work, particularly the best stuff is when the artists are firing on off cylinders and you can tell that they care because that, that work, the care is in the work. And so I was just flipping through my the second issue of Superman again. Um, I'm like, I don't really like this. I don't even know if anyone else is going to like this, but I think you you can see the the thoughtfulness of it. You can see my my passion for it. I think that's good. Wow. I I mean, to me, like <laughs> one of the I was so glad that you were on like the rebirth team because I. Like you have this like legacy with the company, but I also have heard you speak publicly about the importance of diversity a lot, and are also like not a straight white dude. So like knowing that you were in the mix was one of the signs of like hope that I had. Frankly, like I don't think I would have had any trust really without your presence. To be honest. Oh well, thank you. Well, thank you. I'm very very grateful, and I. I I must be said, DC's let me do a lot. I, I mean, I think I'm probably pulling the reins eventually when I go too crazy. Um, but they've been very, very supportive, and I think it, it needs to be said. I'm not, I'm not bullshitting. Like, there have been times I have not wanted to work for that company because they're, they're so erratic um, editorially. And if anything, I think, mm-hmm. I think uh, they have been very, very supportive to me and very good so far. We'll see how that, you know, we'll see if that changes and if I push too many boundaries. But um, there was a period of time I'm not sure I would have worked for them. And 
again, but this is now the time to do it, I guess. Um, they've been good to me, and, and it's, it feels nice to be back for as long as it lasts. That's good. I mean, like, cause I think, it, you know, like, you have this longevity and a, and a voice that people will listen to and, like, will trust and, like, can, like, say the right things. So to be heard, and that matters. That matters a lot. I, I'm glad. I, as I babble on time, like, oh, my God, I just love, I love the sound of my own voice. You will notice there are jokes in Superwoman constantly about people who love the sound of their own voice. That is always a reference <laughs> to me. Like, there's, there's a lot. I think it actually might have been edited um, where Lex Luthor is babbling on about something and Superwoman is like, oh, my God, he loves the sound of his own voice. And I'm like, oh, that's totally me. And then there's another character that calls him out on the same thing in issue two. I'm like, yep, okay, so I'm just, I'm just projecting. But it's Lex, like that's, that's, of course, that's all the um, characters. Yes, but I, because I babble a lot, but I, I want people to know that I approach this stuff quite earnestly and quite thoughtfully when I can. Because um, hmm. I think it's important. Because I always know, I always say I take my job very seriously and representation and the art and all that kind of stuff because I know what an impact it had on my life and I believe it can have an impact on others. I've seen that impact. Um, and I think it's, yeah, I think it's hugely important. About the series, um, you know, going into it, I, you know, I didn't know tons about it other than Lois Lane was kind of becoming taking certain powers from Superman um, and taking the mantle. I actually thought there was going to be a bait and switch and that it was going to be the, the um, uh, crime um, syndicate version of, of Lois Lane acting as a superhero. Um, oh, but, that would have been good. Except yeah, for she blew up. Yeah, exactly. That was one that was first announced <laughs> before all that went down. I was like, uh... Um, so, you know, obviously there's a, another comic with uh, a female character taking over the mantle and powers of a male character. Was that kind of on your mind creating the comic at all? Well, no. I mean, not that specifically because, you know, like it or not, Super will always, I mean, that that will always be Superman. Like, you know, it's it's sort of like when you put that in front of anything or Super in front of anything – just historically, it comes from this place. It is, the only thing I thought about was I didn't want to make, I wanted their agendas to be slightly different. Um, or I don't want them just going around battling alien monsters. Um, I'm not sure if the line made it in the final issue. I actually have to tr- check in my proof. I think it was there. Where, and I know I talked about the second issue, where Superwoman's whole agenda is not just, like, fight crime, but it's to make people's lives better, it's to help them. Yeah. Um, it's to help people. It. It's in emer- yeah, like, in emergencies. And to, like, I was very, very keen on this idea that that for, for this character, for this Superwoman, um, I want... I want there to be an agenda that I think is generally super, which is about not just about fighting crime, it's not just about fighting Zod or Doomsday or whatever, it's about um, making lives better, you know, one life at a time, a group at a time, you know, so when there's a crew of supervillains fighting, her goal is not to, to go beat up the bad guy, 
it's to make sure that people caught in the debris are found and carried to safety. Like that, that was sort of my approach to it. The other thing was um, I wanted to think about new ways of using the powers, like the solar absorption powers. So if, if Superwoman's like a human solar battery, like what do, we, what do we convert solar energy into and how do we do that? And so that was why I brought Lana Lang in. One of the reasons is she's an engineer, so she would think about these powers differently. Um, and she's like, well, what if you did this with your, with your power? And what if you did this? And what if you, thought, thought about, what if you scienced up the powers? Um, so that, that was something I wanted to do. There, there, there is a three-line mm-hmm. of the Superman lines generally where they're the science, you know, Batman's the crime noir, Wonder Woman's the mythology, magic. Superman's like the science, you know, uh, science fiction, and I did want to bring maintain that thematically. So, uh, Superwoman's like really science oriented. Natasha's really science oriented, and the first big villain who who gets revealed, her big reveals in issue two, is really science oriented. And and um, even Lex Luthor, who shows up, is you know in Steel. Like uh, these are there's not a lot of of magic. Oh, or mysticism. Mm-hmm. There's one character, Tracy, Tracy 13, uh, who is Natasha's uh, girlfriend. Is is a she? She does magic, but it's even city based, right? It's still it's still urban based. So um, that's I think if anything, that's what I brought over. So I didn't really think about it because if you got a super on it, it's kind of derivative of Superman. But I wanted to make sure that these characters were not just duplicates of him that they had a voice, that they used their powers differently, that they had a very specific agenda in those stories, that when they got off model, so like in issue three, Superwoman goes a little nuts and Steel's like, yo, this is not what we talked about. Like, you're, and, and she realizes, oh my God, you're right. Um, I'm just beating this guy up to beat him up because I'm pissed off. I'm not, I'm not helping anyone by doing this. And then she's like, how do I help him? Right, and, and so the, the, also the, the, the idea of, uh, it's a very one-on-one idea, but um, it's not just about punishment, it's about rehabilitation. I want a super character that it's not just about putting criminals behind bars, but it's about thinking about the institutions that, that made, made them criminals in the first place. So, and systems, and steel's, actually, steel's a big part of that, actually. Uh, huh. Uh, yeah, so Steel in issue two, because Steel's big intros in issue two, um, we learn a lot about that he, like, he and Natasha, they, the, the sort of armor company that they run, Steelworks, no longer takes government contracts. They don't do any dirty deeds. Like, it's all, and it's all about, um, they're not interested at all in just putting criminals into the system. They're interested in actually transforming the system with the with the things that they create, and then of, and of course are constantly confronted by villains that sort of challenge this idea, because in the DC universe, like uh-huh. you know, these villains are sort of crazy, but um, steals very clearly, and, and Natasha's too. Like there, there's politics behind their superheroing. They don't just want to put criminals in prison. They want to tackle the prison industrial complex. They want to tackle sort of you know the the in whatever way we can do this in DC Comics, mind you, right? Like, I, 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 I'm touching on it. I'm just sort of introducing these ideas, and hopefully they will play out. Um, Steele's brother, Natasha's father, 
is in prison and you know what what does that mean for steel and like what how does that make him think about prison obviously right so that's the sort mm-hmm. of thing I'm interested in I mean it sounds like that the I'm comics start- are also is like is very pertinent to, to you know discussions that are going on today was that something that you you went in wanting to discuss these things or did it kind of like organically oh, come sure. out of the, the story you're telling well, I think both right so it's my natural it's my natural interest I'm so interested in politics of the day. I believe mediums like comic books and soap operas are fantastic for talking about such media uh, in, um, topics or have been in the past, mostly because people, well, certainly in the past, kind of disregarded them, thought of them as trash mediums. So you could get away with a lot. You could start talking about, you could have conversations and, and the higher-ups wouldn't really look at them. You know, they weren't considered serious art. And yet you could, you know, this, we got the X-Men and the New Mutants and all this other sort of wonderful material, transformative, transcendent material out of it. So, so part of it was just believe that comics are a great place to do it. Part of it was the characters themselves, um, me projecting my interest through those characters, which I believe organically. Like, I don't think I'm, I don't think I've decided that anyone is something that they're not, um, you know, based on circumstances. I do tend to sort of contextualize within the, the DC universe itself, so uh, which is slightly different than our world, obviously. So politics are a little bit different, and and laws are different, and things like that. And it's harder, I think, to have conversations about rehabilitating criminals when criminals can literally blow up a city block with a you know a thought. Like I think it gets weird, but I still think you can touch on those subjects at least and get audience members thinking about them. And give characters a point mm-hmm. of view. That's great. Yeah, I think absolutely. <laughs> it's so good. We have, I, I, we have so, a I've, I've written about that, so and how I want that. Oh, oh really? Comics. So yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. We, oh good. I, yeah, I wrote a whole thing about Batman. So <laughs> yeah, I was about to say we've had oh, some discussions awesome. how Batman should be much more uh, uh, using his wealth to. to affect change as much as his brains and his Batman abilities. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like his approach yeah. to charity is charity and it's therefore not constructive and he needs to support community organizing. I like, I wrote that piece. That's that exists. It is on our website. <laughs> but Brad, you had a follow-up question that I really liked about that. About Who did? Man of Steel. Me? Yeah, no? Okay, that's fine. No. I know so little about Steel. No, uh, no I, worries. I, nothing on that. No, sorry. Okay. Wait, um, wait. Say again? Don't worry about it. Uh, I, I, we, okay. we have, like, back channel for managing things, and I apologize. I thought that perhaps <laughs> there was something else we needed to oh, raise no, on that. No, no, that's well, totally fine. If I will have to ask them if, if that's okay to take a second. You drew one of the most important issues of X-Men, in my opinion, which was from Grant Morrison's run of New X-Men, one, number 139, i.e. This, the scene where you have uh, Jean Grey walking in on Scott and yes. Emma's <laughs> psychic infidelity. And it is right. like the soapiest, most amazing and like necessary thing to ever happen. And like I was so glad that you were the one drawing that issue because 
I I don't think I would have been able to handle that with Quietly's art, to be honest. Like, it was better to have it more on a human scale, like what you do there. Right, but, um, right. I don't know. I mean, talk to me, I guess, a little bit about, like, what you were thinking about when you were, were doing that issue and, like, in terms of, like, dramatizing it and representing these two really iconic female characters. Well, and, there's two or three things that I remember yeah. thinking. So I was obsessed, obsessed with Grant Morrison's new X-Men. So the opportunity to actually mm-hmm. draw it was, like, I w- it was, like, fanboy wank dream come true. It was ridiculous. I was so excited to be working on that book. Secondly, all I remember is that we were working fast. We had, this is one of the few times I actually was ever just cranking stuff out, which as I've gotten older, I've gotten much worse at. But back then, like 10 years ago, I'm like, oh, three weeks? Okay, got it, done, right? I just remember cranking that material out. Um, For that stuff, of course, I was so into that relationship, that triad, and so into the idea, because I read the script first, and Emma was so hilarious in it, um, and uh, I think I was also one of those gay boys that was completely enamored of Grant's take on sort of fabulous drag queen Emma. Oh, yeah. Um, right? Like, so, like, her fabulous sister was like, I can't wait to draw. This would be so great, blah, blah, blah. But drawing those two women, there the, were the two things that were important to me. One is that they had a longstanding history. One was that as, as horrible as Jean was to, to um, Emma... I think people tend to forget Emma Frost did do a shitload of damage to the X-Men in her first appearances. And she was, you know, mm-hmm. she was partly responsible for driving Jean crazy and she tried to kill the X-Men. I always loved it in Joss Whedon's X-Men when Kitty Pride would be like, you know, you tried to kill me and I haven't forgotten about it. Because everyone else had, mm-hmm. because Emma was so fabulous. Yep. Everyone, thought, everyone sort of forgave her, even though, like, she she did an enormous amount of damage in her days. Um and so I, what I wanted to do was make sure that the fight was fair, that no matter how, like, rough Jean was on her, that, you know, we'd be reminded that Emma, in her back of the day, was actually kind of horrible, um, and that some of it she probably, she certainly brought on herself. So that's what I remember about that. I also remember thinking, why do these women like Scott Summers? I just, I will <laughs> never, ever, I will never... <laughs> I was never a fan of his. I didn't love him in the new X-Men. I didn't understand, like, and, of course, my, my dirty mind was like, wow, he must do, like, the twirl really well or something because both these women, like, can't get enough of him. And I'm just thinking, oh. what is it about Scott Summers that is so appealing? Like, I was waiting for the day those women were like, we get together and be like, okay, enough. Um, we're done with him. Let's move on. Um, so I, under- I understood the history like the, the soapy history of those characters and the need for that particular triangle. But my question was always like, what do you get out of Scott? Like, what, what do you like him so much? So, um, but that's just me. And that's what I remember. I, yeah, I remember I, feeling just, like that was like an questions. amazing issue to draw. That was what I really remember. Um, was how, was how great it was to draw that stuff. And how excited I was to be working with Grant Morrison on x That's really what I remember. Oh, my gosh. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. It's actually not on Marvel Unlimited, by the way. Like, they skipped that one issue just to make it harder Is that for us true? to relive those. Yes. Oh. It's weird. It's, like, not on Marvel Unlimited. Like, the most important, most pivotal issue it's actually pretty simple. I mean, because the, 
the murder mystery about who killed her, I think, is less interesting than, you know, than the, that moment between those two. Um, I like the, the only key, other thing I remember. Key. Yeah. It's just, God, we had to draw that so fast. I just remember that back in the day. Mm. That those extra books had to be generated so quickly. Well, I mean, I, I hope that, like, I, I, you know, like you're teaching anatomy and, like, drawing to, like, you know, the next generation of artists. And, like, I, I hope that comics becomes a space where artists are allowed to take enough time to do their art well. Because I don't like looking at sloppy shit. Yeah, you know? it's hard. I think it's it's harder and harder. The demands of, I mean, work has become more sophisticated. It's more competitive. Uh, it lives longer. Um, art sales factor in. It's harder, I think, to do really sophisticated art over a long period of time. I tend to be really awed by the young people that can, um, that can that can manage it because uh, I'm not good. As I say, I'm not good at it. And I apologize to the readers of Superwoman um, and to my editors for not being better at it. Like I, I really, well, I had hoped to do a really long run, but we've just found that it's, it's better to stagger and sort of work in and build in um, a rotating artist just, you know, uh, uh, for time and to, to, to allow each of us to do our best work. Um, yeah, it's just a different world, just a different art world. And I think back in the days when um, the artists that I loved were able to crank out like 24 pages a month, I think, how did you do that? And then I think, oh, that was before the Internet. I think a lot of artists, I think a lot of artists like myself, we spent, I, I certainly, one of my great issues is I spend a lot of time on the Internet uh, screwing around, looking at stuff, consuming news, um, promoting material in a way that I just never did, you know, 15 years ago. So I think uh, one of the things that we talk about a lot among teachers is teaching young, young people time management um, and how to navigate their sort of social media lives alongside their uh, their their other um, their work lives. Teach them how not to subtweet people and how not to punch down. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting. Um, much punching down. Wait, what? With the. Uh, oh. Go ahead. So one question we had, um, you know, is we probably should wrap up because we've taken more than enough of your time, speaking of wasting time on the Internet. Um, so is there any of your students that, you know, maybe we should be on the lookout for? Is there anyone kind of like you want to give a shout-out to? Oh, I give out shout-outs a lot. But then, so two students that I adore, so um, uh, Edwin Wang and um, – oh, my God, of course now it's late and I'm blanking. Oh, Isaac Goodhart. Like these are – Two artists of mine I had like probably eight or nine years ago who struck it big um, and are now huge stars. And Edwin has more Instagram followers than I do, like thousands more. His art's fantastic, and Isaac works um, for Ashton Studios. And then Alonzo Nunez, a former student, uh, actually inked. I did breakdown several months ago for a Attack on Titan project that's coming out, uh, and he Ooh. was my inker on it. So a former student inked me, and he's amazing. He actually founded this company called Little Fish Studios in San Diego, and he teaches young people how to draw comics. And that guy is super rad. Um, I, I have a, 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 stu- um, 
I never pronounced his last name right, but uh, my student Frank uh, and Lydia. Uh, Frank's this kind of like amazing Renaissance artist who can draw and sculpt and do all this sort of stuff. Now he's a tattoo artist. Um, Lydia's fantastic. Um, and then, uh, uh, yeah, several, actually, several students a year end up becoming, have ended up working. Gus Storm works with Stuart Moore a lot. Um, uh, I have a young student who just graduated. His name is Carrick Esquivel, and he wants to be a, uh, he wants to do comics and work in animation. And one of the most dedicated students I've ever seen, and he's actually really, really terrific. There's a, a young woman named Rachel Adler, whose work I just adore. Um, she said she was always amazing. The, the consistent through line I find, and this is true of me as a student, is that the young people that are successful um, kind of do what they do. They have a very clear vision when they come to class. And... Um, are either smart enough or good enough to take lessons to make that vision better. Um, but it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty clear every year. And I hate saying that because I, I like to be surprised. But almost every year um, I have students who I'm like, you're going to work on this book. You're going to do this kind of, kind of book. If you don't screw this up, this is your future. Um, and it's usually because they are ambitious and hardworking I'd have a very specific goal in mind. Uh, a young woman uh, named Harpia last year was a huge Transformers fan, amazing Transformers artist, um, amazing Photoshop colors, just fantastic. She would annoy me because she would take these shortcuts, and I would try to convince her she would just stop that, just take the extra 15 minutes to do sort of like certain things. The work would be perfect. Um, she was so talented. And, and she's someone I expect will go far. She's also incredibly ambitious. So I definitely have um, a lot of students who have been successful, I believe, will be successful. And I do think the, the overriding, um, what do I want to say, the, the commonality is that they are very specific and they have very specific, specific goals um, and they work really hard. I mean, they work really, really hard. I will say that nothing frustrates me more. Hello, if any of you felt like students are listening, to, to have a complete lack of vision. So one of the things I ask of my students when they come in, I ask them over and over and over, is comics are business. If you are a commercial artist, you are a business person who makes your product is your, your art. So I ask students where and how they want their work to be seen, how they want it to be consumed, in what format, at what price point, uh, through what distribution method, um, how will they pay for it, et cetera. Like, these things are all incredibly important uh, to me, and they're such important and vital parts of our business. And I think a lot of young people just think, I'm just going to draw comics, forgetting about things like the IRS and insurance and um, how to navigate with a difficult editor and what happens uh, you know, if you get fired from a job or, you know, all this, just tons of, tons of stuff. So one thing I do with all, all my students is ask them these questions over and over and over. What do you want your look, work to look like? Where do you want it to be seen? What do you want people to pay for it? And more importantly, why should they pay for your work as opposed to a fellow student? If I have six bucks and I can buy two comics, what are you saying that is more compelling than than the, the student next to you. Um, and, you know, 
what about your art is more enticing than theirs and, and try to get them thinking about that. And as ever, I try to also get them to start building interpersonal relationships. Most of my close friends, uh, my best friend was uh, my college roommate. Uh, most of my closest friends are people I knew in college, uh, fellow artists. And we were really, really good about critiquing each other and really, really good with um, idea exchange and helping each other. And I really encourage students in both the mentor program I work with and at SVA to start working with each other not to help each other. I find a lot of young artists these days have a very difficult time with critique, and I think they, they do not like the idea of tearing someone's work apart, but I always try to remind them that critique is not about just ripping something to shreds. It is about identifying problem areas and then providing ways to solve those problems. And if you can do that with a group of friends, I think that's actually a really extraordinary thing. Um, so I encourage that among all my students. But, yeah, so I have a few students out there that I'm very excited about and very proud of. Um, and they make me cry when I see them because they're so successful. Aww. Aww. <clears throat> Makes me happy. Well, thank you again for joining us. I, I, you know, I've been on your case for a while, and we made it happen, <laughs> and we would love to have you back anytime you want. For real. For real. I'm, I'm as ever, I just babbled for like an hour and 40 minutes and I'm always grateful for the opportunity. I think it's a very strange and wonderful thing that I work in a business where anyone actually gives a shit about what I have to say and that I have a form to do so. But I always say, and you'll probably see this end up in Superwoman, this line, that you know, there's 7 million people on the planet, 7 billion people, excuse me, and we all have stories to tell. And so many are so much more interesting than mine. I just happen to have access and resources and a voice to tell them. And so I'm always really grateful for the opportunity to do that. Um, I, like, I never take it for granted, um, I think, because so many people don't have the opportunity. So I'm grateful for you letting me babble on your show. <laughs> anytime. Anytime. Excellent. So tell our listeners Excellent. where we can find you on the Internet so they can keep up with your work. And they can also watch you Woman to, on Wednesday. On Wednesday. Oh, my God. I can't believe it's, it's actually real. It's here. <laughs> um, so you can always find me at Phil Jimenez NYC. Uh, it's the same handle as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, I do not have a Tumblr, but I probably should. But it's Phil Jimenez, my name, NYC. It's all one word, at Facebook, at Twitter, at Instagram. I tend to put most of my artwork on Instagram, and then post articles and new stuff on uh, Twitter. And then Facebook's just Facebook. So it can range from family photos to, you know, Donald Trump diatribes. <laughs> but any one of those places, you can follow me. So thank you very much. much. Great. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you. Fun. Have a wonderful evening. And uh, I hope you guys all enjoy Superwoman. I think it's pretty funny. Absolutely. I think it's good. Yeah. I, I liked it a lot. We do, too. It's a nice review coming too. from me. Oh, good. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you. That makes me happy. Uh, let's all go to bed. <laughs> okay. Yes. Bye. Okay, I'll yes, talk so. to you later. Thank Bye. You very much. Yep. Bye. And our listeners should know we'll be back on Monday, and mm-hmm. I don't know what we're going to be talking about yet, but it will be something, indeed. Yes. And we have a couple I, of really uh, great guests coming up for folks. Yep. Yeah, we do. 
Um, and of course, folks can catch us every single day at uh, graphicpolicy.com. Of course, we're on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and uh, I'm going <laughs> to do this because I just saw someone tweet at us. Yes, it's live, Clark. We are listening to it live. Um, and of course, uh, yeah, got a little distracted there. Uh, for this week, we're also going to have tons of interviews. And you can also interviews. download our podcast later. Yes, yeah, yeah. We're, we'll be up on iTunes in a little while and Stitcher in a little bit, and then it will be downloaded and uploaded up onto SoundCloud so you can listen to it there and download it um, and take it on the go and share it with folks and stuff like that. So you can catch it again and again and again, and we encourage you to do. Um, and this week we're going to have lots of more interviews coming up uh, with a bunch of folks from DC Comics and elsewhere that was done at uh, San Diego Comic-Con. We're rolling that out uh, about at least an interview a day uh, for the next few days. So it should last a little while because uh, you know, I did a lot of interviews at San Diego. So, uh, And, yeah, we'll be back next week. We'll uh, post up a new episode on Blog Talk Radio Later this week, once uh, we get things all settled there. But as always, thank you for listening. Alana, do you want to tell them where you, they can find you? Yes, I am at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. At, and that's my uh, Twitter. And my Tumblr is Ilana Brooklyn without a space. Yes, so you can go follow her. And you, uh, yes. What were you going to say? I'm sorry, I just cut you off. I was going to say, and my other stuff is not for you. <laughs> so, so thank you yeah. Uh, but yeah as always thank you for listening we'll be back next week and until then I'm Brett I'm Ilana keep it geeky <laughs>